and welcome to this Habit Miss Free Hills podcast. My name is Maria Dotto and I'm one of counsel in the disputes team in Moscow. I'm joined by Nick Peacock, partner in the International Arbitration Group in London, Jeremy Garson, partner in the Disputes Group in London, and Ivan Tisolkin, senior associate in the disputes team in Moscow. Both Nick and Jeremy have a focus on Russia-related arbitration. Nick, Jeremy, Ivan and I are recording this podcast to coincide with the launch of a new Habit Miss Freehills guide on Russian dispute resolution and governing law clauses. Nick, can you perhaps start us off by explaining why we've produced this guide? Sure. Recent changes to Russian law have caused a degree of uncertainty among clients as to what they can and cannot do when transacting with Russian parties or in transaction involving Russian entities. This is particularly true surrounding the dispute resolution and governing law clauses that they can agree to. We've had so many queries from clients that we thought it would be useful for our London and Moscow offices to jointly prepare a guide to help our clients understand the ways in which Russian law restricts the choice of law in contracts and the types of dispute resolution mechanisms that can be used for Russia-related commercial contracts. Thank you, Nick. Now you mentioned our clients. Who is this guide designed for? Yes, well, it's for the clients. The guide is principally aimed at in-house counsel who handle Russia-related commercial contracts and who need to have a practical understanding of the nuances of drafting dispute resolution and governing law clauses in the Russian context. We've made it very accessible and clear so that anyone handling a Russia-related transaction can hopefully understand what their options are. Thank you, Nick. Ivan, Nick mentioned a degree of uncertainty among our clients about what they can and can't agree in terms of governing law and dispute resolution where there is a Russian context. Where had this confusion come from? Thanks, Maria. On 1st September 2016, a number of important changes to the Russian arbitration legislation came into effect. Those changes were the result of a full-scale arbitration reform, which was launched in 2013. The aims of this reform were to achieve an arbitration-friendly legislative framework in Russia, to boost the use of arbitration by commercial entities, and to eliminate the widespread practice of companies setting up their own pocket arbitration institution to administer disputes to which, they, to which they are party. In March 2019, the arbitration law was amended again in an attempt to address various issues that arose shortly after the implementation of the 2016 arbitration reform. Then, at the end of June 2020, another new law came into force which gave Russian state commercial courts exclusive jurisdiction with respect to disputes involving Russian sanctioned individuals and entities, as well as foreign entities controlled by them. This amendment significantly changed the landscape of Russia-related arbitration. So the guide seeks to unpack those changes and explain how they can affect the party's choice of governing law and dispute resolution mechanisms. Thank you, Ivan. It may be now helpful to briefly go through the key points covered in the guide, so that our listeners have an idea of what to expect from it. Shall we start with governing law? Ivan, what should the parties be in mind when choosing a governing law clause in a Russia-related commercial contract? 
Well, when drafting a contract, it's important to state expressly which law will govern it. Parties negotiating a Russia-related commercial contract should consider at the outset whether their contract should be governed by Russian law or the laws of another country. You say should be governed by Russian law. Does it mean there are restrictions on when you are able to choose the laws of another country in a Russia-related commercial contract? Yes, that's the exact point, and one that many clients are unaware of. Russian law restricts your choice in certain circumstances. For example, the contract has to be governed by Russian law when it is related to land plots, subsoil plots, or other other immovable property located in Russia. Now, for many of our clients, this won't be relevant, but it's very much worth being aware of. The guide explains this in detail so parties can work out whether their choice is in any way restricted. Thank you, Ivan. Once the parties have worked out what they can do in terms of governing law, are there any model governing law clauses in the guide they can use? Absolutely. The guide has examples of recommended governing law clauses for Russia and other jurisdictions that the parties could add in their contract. Thank you. Jeremy, the second area of uncertainty surrounds dispute resolution choices for Russia-related commercial contracts. Could you talk us through the key issues here? Sure. So, just as with governing law clauses, Russian law may limit parties' choices, and it's very important to be aware of that. The first step is for parties to consider whether it's mandatory for the dispute to be resolved through litigation in Russian courts. So the question will be whether the dispute is non-arbitrable or falls within the exclusive jurisdiction of Russian courts. And when would that be? Could you give us a few examples? Well, uh, this would be the case in disputes involving state procurement, disputes arising out of bankruptcy or insolvency of Russian parties, and certain corporate disputes, for example, disputes relating to refusals to register legal entities or involving liquidation of legal entities in Russia. Thank you, Jeremy. Assuming that litigation in the Russian courts isn't mandatory, where do the parties go from there? So we then come down to the choice between offshore litigation and arbitration. The parties need to consider whether they have a preference for litigation in another court, for example, in the courts of England and Wales. The parties may wish to adjudicate their disputes in the courts of that jurisdiction due to the reputation of the forum or because of the location of one or more of the parties or their assets. Although this is generally acceptable as a matter of Russian law, subject to, as I've said, Russian state courts having exclusive jurisdiction to hear certain disputes, it is sensible for the parties to consider whether choosing a particular jurisdiction could cause any enforcement issues. In particular, if the counterparty has all their assets in Russia, it's absolutely critical to make sure that any judgment obtained from a foreign court is enforceable in Russia. Thank you, Jeremy. Now we mentioned arbitration. Nick, let me come back to you. If a party wants to choose to arbitrate future disputes rather than litigate, are there any restrictions on the Russian law surrounding that agreement to arbitrate? Yes, there are. And the guide goes into detail on this point. If litigation is not mandatory and the parties can opt for arbitration, 
then the parties need to consider whether it is mandatory that the arbitration itself is seated in Russia, or whether the arbitration needs to be conducted in accordance with the rules of what is called a Permanent Arbitration Institution, or PAI. This is the case in relation to certain corporate disputes, that is, disputes related to the creation, management or participation in a Russian company. Thank you, Nick. Ivan, could you please explain what a PAI is and what this restriction means for our clients? Sure. A PAI is a product of the arbitration reform I mentioned earlier. It is a recognized institution which is accredited to administer arbitration on a permanent as opposed to ad hoc basis. Currently, the list of PAIs includes five institutions based in Russia, such as the International Commercial Arbitration Court at the Chamber of Commerce and Industry, as well as two non-Russian institutions, the Hong Kong International Arbitration Center and the Vienna International Arbitral Center. As the guide sets out, it's really important that our understanding the Russian rules, that you understand the Russian rules so that you choose the right seat of arbitration and know whether or not you must agree to a PAI in your arbitration clause. If you don't, there is a chance that your arbitration agreement will be viewed as invalid by the Russian courts. We go into the implementation of this in the guide. Thank you, Ivan. Now, if we assume that there are no restrictions on the seat of arbitration or the arbitral institution, where does this leave parties? If there are no Russian law restrictions, then parties can choose whichever seat or arbitral institution they have a preference for and can negotiate commercially. Parties may wish to consider opting for arbitration with a seat outside of Russia, for example in London, Stockholm, Geneva, Zurich or Paris, The seats are very popular among parties to Russia-related commercial disputes. Singapore and Hong Kong are also becoming increasingly popular. Thank you, Ivan. So, once you've worked out the right arbitration clause for your transaction, does the guide provide any examples of arbitration clauses that can be used by parties? Yes, the guide has several modal dispute resolution clauses that the parties can use. The arbitration clauses are based on those recommended by arbitral institutions such as the ICAC, LCIA, ICC, NCAC. In December 2018, the Russian Supreme Court explained that arbitration clauses recommended by a particular arbitration institution are valid and enforceable, and courts should be slow in doubting their enforceability. Thank you, Ivan. Jeremy, does the guide cover other topics of interest? such as unilateral option clauses, which are very popular in finance transactions? Yes, we've touched on this too. As a reminder, a unilateral option clause, or UOC, entitles only one party to a contract to choose the dispute resolution forum once a dispute arises. The guide explains the special rules regarding enforceability of UOCs in Russia. The key point to remember is that if a UOC gives the option to only one named party, for example, the lender in a financing transaction, then the clause will be held to be invalid to the extent that it deprives the other party, for example, the borrower, of the same option. And in that case, both parties will be deemed to have the right to use all dispute resolution options outlined in the UOC. 
Thank you, Jeremy. Final question to Ivan. Does the guy discuss the consequences of the new sanction law that entered into force in June 2020? Yes, it does. As some of our listeners may know, the new law provides that Russian sanctioned individuals and entities, as well as foreign entities controlled by them, can disregard the dispute resolution provisions in their contracts if they cannot enforce, if they cannot be enforced due to sanctions. The guide explains how the new law is intended to work in practice and contains a few suggestions to foreign parties doing business with sanctioned persons. Thank you, Ivan and Jeremy. This sounds very interesting and helpful for foreign entities and banks doing business in Russia with Russian counterparties. Nick, and how can our listeners reach out to get a copy of the guide? The guide is available on our website in the latest thinking section. And if you can't find it there, you can contact any of us and we will be happy to arrange for a copy to be sent out to you. That brings us to the end of this podcast. We hope you found it helpful and thank you for joining us. If you'd like to discuss any of the points we've raised, then please do get in touch with me, Maria Doltova, Nick Peacock, Jeremy Gosson, Ivan Tisolkin, or your usual Habit Miss Freehills contact.